and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. So, Tracy, obviously, we've done a handful of like crypto DeFi episodes in the last few months. Obviously, area of growing interest. I would still say, however, that for all the enthusiasm, like by and large, I like it doesn't seem like anything crypto DeFi is like seriously cutting into traditional finance in a big way yet. Like, it still feels like a pretty separate uh, universe. Yeah, well, this is a point that you've brought up on a number of those episodes, this idea that we have DeFi, but so far it basically seems to be sort of self-dealing in crypto and in various tokens. There hasn't really been an extension outside of the crypto space. Right. It feels like it feels very recursive, kind of like Mm -hmm. a a snake eating its tail, like some interesting um, proof of concept about how market making works or the idea of like an automated market maker or sort of like collateralized lending. But yes, by and large, like, you know, if you were to sort of look at, say, what banks are doing or what trading firms are doing at this point, the two don't seem to be uh, intersecting all that much. Or, you know, I can't think of like many trading lines or business lines within finance that are like, oh, we're losing money to DeFi or to crypto in some way. Yeah. Which kind of goes back to a wider point or one of the original criticisms of blockchain, which is that, you know, for all the excitement and all the hype, we didn't actually see that many real economy applications of blockchain. Um, And the fact that finance hasn't been able to make some of the technology from DeFi work, like kind of hints at that issue. Although, I mean, I have to say there are regulatory hurdles to actually doing right. um, DeFi type things if you're a regulated financial institution. Hey, Tracy, have you ever like played around or like, you know, with, you know, a while ago now, like back in the spring, we did that Hayden uh, Adams one on Uniswap. Did you, have you ever like gone around mm. and like playing around with, with Uniswap at all or? Seeing how it really works or anything? Yeah, I did. Um, I started like a MetaMask account and was playing around a yeah, little yeah. bit. But like, I got to say, even starting a MetaMask account from Hong Kong is <laughs> a nightmare in and of itself. Like just getting money onto it um, took me like a full day to figure out. No, I mean, like, it seems cool. And it, it is. It's actually very impressive. And it's like there's some interesting breakthroughs. But like, it's just obvious, like, it's not up to snuff, like, for, like, anything that's sort of, like, actual, like, high-performance finance. Like, you know, trading, people are used to, like, executions, like, millisecond-scale executions. The cost of trading is, for so totally. many different assets, virtually free. And as everyone knows, you know, it's like, I saw you, you had a really good joke a while back about gas prices on Uniswap. Like, the cost of, say, like, a trading on the Ethereum blockchain or whatever is, like, far above anything that would be, like, actual finance scale at this point. Absolutely. And I mean, just the knowledge that you need in order to dip your toes in it. And again, like going back to the MetaMask account creation, like that took me ages. And I know like a little bit about what's going on. Um, And then actually doing DeFi, you know, picking like what tokens you're interested in and then making the calculations for how much yield you can earn (laughs) versus the gas fees. Like it it kind of boggles the mind and it is worlds away from um, the kind of, I guess, service, is service the right term? Uh, customer experience that you would yeah. get on traditional financial applications. 
Right. And like if there's like a hot new NFT drop on Ethereum, like gas fees, which I guess are more or less like the commissions will like shoot to the moon. Like obviously, like if you're like want a high performance trading environment, like serious trading, it's obviously it's not there yet. It's super interesting. It might get there, but it's not there yet. Yeah, I would agree with that. So all of this is to say, uh, to get to our discussion today that I'm very excited about, and we're going to be talking about a crypto blockchain initiative, which is extremely hot right now, lots of interest. And it's kind of like um, what I would say is it's going after sort of like Wall Street grade finance grade finance. And by that, I mean, actually attempting to you know, I the idea that maybe you can have a blockchain, but it actually is at the speeds that Wall Street is used to, actually at the trading costs Wall Street is used to. And, you know, I think it's interesting because one of the things that people say about blockchain, they're like, oh, it's a bad database. A blockchain is just a slow database. And for most use cases, it's not what you want. This We're going to be talking about a blockchain uh, project that actually is attempting to not just be a slow and efficient database, but to actually uh, be high performance. Yeah, let's do it. I'm excited. All right. I'm super excited about this episode because it's super hot and people are into uh, this stuff right now. We're gonna be, we have two great guests on. Um, we're going to be speaking with uh, Anatoly Yakovenko. He is the CEO of Solana Labs, and he is the creator of the Solana Protocol, which is this like smart contracting blockchain crypto platform that's kind of like Ethereum, some similar ideas. And we're also going to be speaking to Kanav Korea. He is the director of strategic projects at Jump Trading. It's a well-known trading firm. And they're doing a lot of interesting crypto stuff that we'll be getting into. And so it should be an interesting uh, conversation on the sort of like marriage of technology, finance, and an attempt to do crypto at true Wall Street grade or finance grade. So uh, Anatoly and Kanov, thank you so much for joining us. Awesome to be here. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for having me on, Joe. Excited to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited about this one. The timing is great. Well, you know, it's like we're recording this August 18th. Most of the big coins are still well below their highs, but people are super into Solana, and I think people are going to be excited about hearing this one <laughs> uh, when this comes out. But, um, you know, like, so... Anatoly, I want to start with you. I mean, this is this cliche that people have said for a long time. Blockchains are bad, inefficient databases. And I think a lot of people just sort of accepted that it's true, that there's like this like trade-off that you have to make. It's like, okay, you can like be decentralized, you can be permissionless, you can be censorship-free, but the price of that is high cost of execution and slow cost of execution. And that more or less, I would say, characterizes like Bitcoin and Ethereum, at least right now. And it seems like Solana essentially attempts to say, no, we don't have to accept the inherent inefficiency. Like, what is Solana? What is the goal? And how do you think about that trade off? Yeah. So, the the trade off you described is kind of this thing that people call a trilemma. Yeah. Right. Decentralization, performance, security. And that trilemma really only applies if the network tries to exceed the bandwidth available to it. So bandwidth is, you know, what you get out of Cox, out of out of Time Warner, whatever, out of AOL, they give you one gigabit at home in a lot of places in the United States now. And that that's that's really what they mean by bandwidth. Well if you look at Ethereum and kind of like these these uh you know proof of work based networks, they weren't designed to maximize the amount of bandwidth that each system can use. 
they really weren't designed to soak up one gigabit. That that was really not something that they were built for. So my background, if you folks don't know, I spent most of my career at Qualcomm. I was there from like flip phone days when really wow. like there were these dinky little devices, 2003. And uh, when I left in like 2015, my team was like optimizing augmented reality in a supercomputer, basically. <laughs> so I saw this like massive improvement in hardware in just a span of 10 years. And I've also saw what what real bandwidth looks like. 5G that we were, you know, was in R&D stages while I was there is designed to give you one gigabit. Well, two, two people are driving, one in China, one in the United States. They should have a one gigabit bidirectional channel between them. And if you try to fit transactions over that channel, you can stuff about 700,000 transactions per second, like Ethereum size, Bitcoin size transactions. So the only thing that's missing really is the hardware to handle it. And that's the challenge. Like, can we build a system, a fast database that could both process these messages, all the cryptographic signature verifications and retransmit them around the world as fast as possible? So that that's really what we set out to do. We had some you know, really clever insights, like using a verifiable delay function as a source of time in con- before consensus, and you know, using GPUs and and AVX and a bunch of hardware optimizations for you know how the runtime works, how the execution environment works. But a lot of these things are um, engineering, like you know, yeah. hardcore engineering, you know, challenges, but oh. not computer science problems. Hmm. So this idea that you've sort of solved the trilemma, or the idea that a blockchain can only outperform in two of three areas. So decentralization, security, and scalability. Can you maybe go into a bit more detail about how exactly you do that? When you say it's more of a hardware issue versus computer science, what do you actually mean and and how does the whole thing work? So, So you can imagine a single computer that's really fast, right? You send a transaction, it gives you a response back, hey, I'm done. Right. So that that's something everybody can imagine if there was one computer that did this work. So there's this thing called time division multiple access, which is how 2G cellular networks work. And the way they work is you have your channel, your bandwidth, your your physical frequency signal, and you have a bunch of subscribers that want to transmit at the same time over it. Well, if you allow them to transmit at the same time, you get noise because radio interferes. Same with blockchain. If you have two block producers, two computers, they're really, really fast to try to produce a block in the ledger at the same time, you get a fork and it's the network is in a noisy state. So this idea that we had really early on using a verifiable delay function or proof of history, if anyone has heard anything about Solana, they heard of proof of history. This is a clock that is outside of consensus and it rotates the button of when any block producer can transmit a block. And it does it in a very predictable, deterministic way and does it really, really fast. So and experimentally, we, we've done it in 400 milliseconds. So every 400 milliseconds, this button moves. Right now, the slots are 400 milliseconds, but we move the button basically every four slots. So you can think of this different, really, really fast computer around the world gets to be the next block producer every like roughly 1.6 seconds. And because everybody knows ahead of time, this is the really fast computer that's going to start, you know, start creating these blocks. You don't run into a lot of the bottlenecks that you run in Ethereum, proof of work networks, and all these other kind of random based coordination networks. And this, this, this is like 2G cellular networks. This is stuff that like 
basically, I had to learn as part of my interview at Qualcomm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, kind of, why don't you come in, talk to us a little bit about um, what you do at jump trading with crypto. I mean, jump trading, I think people may or may not know. Maybe you could just describe what it is, what it's doing in crypto, and sort of like what the, um, I guess, to you know, dovetail with what we're talking, what uh, Anatoly's been talking about, some of like what needs to happen for crypto to get to the scale where it's worth it for serious finance players to uh, be involved in it. Jump is a coordinator trading firm that was founded about two decades ago in the pits, the CME, and is one of the largest participants across traditional traditional markets spanning most asset classes. Uh, and Jump's crypto effort began as a Skunkworks intern project uh, six years ago at the University of Illinois, where Jump has a research lab. Uh, and you know our involvement in the space has grown pretty dramatically over the last six years. And you know I, I kind of classify what we do broadly in two buckets. So one is prop trading, which is you know, exactly what we do on the other side of the house, where we connect a lot of markets and, and participate very actively across the crypto landscape. The second piece where this conversation is probably more interesting is the strategic bucket, where we've been involved in partnering with and investing in pieces of infrastructure across the crypto space. And that you know, kind of started with centralized infrastructure, with exchanges, custodians, other picks and shovels, and has you know, evolved into the much more exciting spaces, participating with on-chain protocols and projects uh, such as Solana and contributing in a much more hands-on fashion to projects like the Bit Network. Which, which I'm sure we'll get a chance to chat about a little bit today. Yeah, I, I guess tackling that question of you know what it's going to take to, to yeah. bring finance to, uh, yeah, to crypto. Well, well, projects like the Pit Network are, are, are definitely one piece of it, and I'll, and I'll and I'll save that for you know maybe a little bit later in the interview. But like like Anatoly was you know was mentioning, there's a lot of scalability that's yet to be had, and that's needed in order to come out of this this, this sandbox that we've been playing in with for the last five years. Right. And so if you want to build finance that can execute on open order books and process a lot of transactions every 400 milliseconds so that you can facilitate a lot of meaningful risk transfer, you need a, a blockchain or, you know, a, or something like Solana that can process and be that execution layer uh, to facilitate that. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, the stuff that you guys touched on earlier in terms of user experiences uh, and, and other you know, problems that have been talked about a bunch. But you know, I can I can tell you that through the course of our participation in the space, we've seen a dramatic improvement in the quality of access that's available. And as more and more firms, you know, like us get involved, and and and, and as more projects like Solana continue to reach maturity, and more capital continues to enter the space, these are all kind of, in in my view, pretty solvable problems that are that are being tackled. Um, Anatoly, I'm curious, just on that note, like when you originally set out to found Solana, what was what was the goal or ambition of the product? So a lot of people have described it as an Ethereum killer. Was that the ultimate aim to create something that's faster, um, that's more scalable? And exactly what applications did you have in mind for it? The the slide deck, the seed level slide deck literally said blockchain at NASDAQ speed. <laughs> that was the tagline. Uh, and we were going after like what I thought we would be going after are like these monopolies like NASDAQ, like NYSE, like CME. Because, you know, for whatever reason, I started trading on like interactive brokers and a bunch of Forex sites. And um, in my experience as an engineer, 
I was always like a little behind on when I got the data, when I got the information from these from these places. And when my orders got submitted, they're always a little later than everyone else's. <laughs> so I always felt like I was always getting screwed by somebody else that had access to this financial backbone. And this core thing that blockchains are that different block, blockchains from databases is this idea of censorship resistance. So if we have a really fast blockchain and all you need is hardware to connect to it and you're on the same level playing field as you know jump trading or all the best traders in the world, that's really something that I felt would be good. You know, that that's the product that I wanted. I'm uh, blown away by the progress over the last year, having folks like jump trading, like, you know, have their engineers start building lists and really take this seriously. And it, you know, it was a dream and kind of a silly idea, maybe and a silly tagline and a slide deck. But now it really feels real. Like there's I think there's a chance that financial execution trading could actually run on uh, Solana in the next five to 10 years for, for the majority of, of things that are traded in the world. So you mentioned uh, censorship resistance and of course, like, you know, this is like a core value, like in Bitcoin. And when I think about it in the Bitcoin realm, you know, the core Satoshi's vision, you know, I think about like, OK, I could send a transaction from here in New York to Tracy in Hong Kong and no third party needs to know about it. And no third party could say no. And no third party could say, oh, you're not allowed to send that much across borders to Hong Kong because it's going to like there, you know, it's like that cypherpunk vision that it's just between me and Tracy and no one else is involved in the transaction. It feels like it means something a little bit different in the con in the sort of like pure finance context where you're talking about, oh, you don't like the fact that as a client of interactive brokers, it feels like there's someone who maybe has a computer in a server room in New Jersey who's a millisecond closer to the exchange or whatever. Talk about what censorship resistance means in the context of like, you know, trading interest rate swap. So there's, uh, you know, this, these transactions, it's especially trades, it's information that's propagating around the world. And you can think of it as kind of chasing news. So some newsworthy event happens in Singapore, that newswire trades, you know, fires off to a trader that's looking at that Bloomberg terminal and they, make, and they look at a market and then they make the trade. The goal for us is to have state transitions, like transactions to propagate at that same speed, speed of light through fiber. So by the time that trader looks at the markets, they see the exact same price, CME or NYSE. And because the in, how the information propagates, it's simultaneously to every computer that's part of the Solana network and anybody can join that set. It means that me as a Joe Schmo Anatoly that wants to play around with deep learning and, and make my models, I get that data as fast as, you know, the best traders in the world. And therefore I can make my trades, you know, based on how good I am at, at the same kind of level playing field. So it's really like, I, I make this joke, it's kind of a, maybe a little morbid, but I, I say Solana is really great if you're building a nuclear first strike detector. You actually want to see the rockets launch and you want that signal to fire. Bitcoin is really great for after the that strike lands and you need to like rebuild society. <laughs> yeah. um, so how does that 
So, I mean, there is a tension with blockchain and regulated financial institutions that we kind of touched on earlier. Um, And of course, we've seen Gary Gensler come out recently and talk about how a lot of tokens look a lot like synthetic securities. So I'm just wondering, how does the permissionless aspect of a blockchain um, stack up against the highly, highly controlled and regulated world of financial transactions? So uh, a blockchain, especially like one like Solana, it's really like a very dumb packet switch. It's really doing nothing more interesting than AT&T does, except it guarantees this censorship resistant piece that if I send a message, it's delivered to all the subscribers and the fault tolerance and all these consensus algorithms guarantee that that part, that there isn't any central party that can stop it. So that that is really like very dumb work. Right, the validators that do this, they don't—they're not aware of the bits that are sending. I feel like where regulation should step in is at the places where somebody is saying these bits in this computer in this packet switch represent something of value, and I'm claiming that they represent something of value to to the public, right? Because that—that's the thing that is kind of like you know effectuating the bits into something that has you know, trust, assumptions that people will look at it and say, okay, is that really the Uniswap token? Is that really the Bitcoin token? Who am I sending my money to? That's a perfect place to regulate. The actual bits, how they're transmitted, that's really like dumb packet switch work, you know? Like, I I think what we've seen, especially in the last, you know, like during the discussions around the uh, amendment in the infra bill, I feel like I feel like those folks got that part and actually started moving towards that direction. Maybe kind of maybe you could come in and talk about it from the perspective of a trading firm that has to think about regulations or think about what is securities and has regulatory obligations. Because it does feel like, as Tracy said, this seems like it's going to cut, come up more and more. It's like, what are these? Are these are these securities properly registered? Like, how do you see the this playing out from your perspective and? Maybe you could just, yeah, give us Jump's perspective or your perspective. Yeah, so it, it, uh, as you pointed out, Jump has a massive body of folks that are constantly monitoring the situation uh, to ingest all this information as it comes in. And there's there's a lot of shades of gray, right? Our participation in this space has been defined by a lot of the activities that we've been able to get comfortable with, you know, one of them being contributing data to the BIT network as a very neutral again like like anatoly was saying like a, like a dumb packet switch thing you know, where we're contributing data that's helping bring pricing information in a high fidelity fashion to the blockchain and that's a kind of neutral piece of infrastructure that can be leveraged to build a lot of things you know i'm very curious uh, if you could talk a little bit more about this uh the pith network because um you know we had we did a DeFi episode i think probably about a month and a half ago with tom schmidt of uh, dragonfly capital and he talked one of the ways in which this space could move forward is essentially sort of like through kind of like synthetic assets that use outside oracles to bring in pricing, bring out, bring outside pricing onto the chain. Talk to us like a little bit about what that is. What do you, what is Pith? What are you contributing to it and why? Like, why are you contributing data to this, uh, to this network? Yeah. Uh, so Pith is uh, effectively a high speed data bridge between the rest of the world and blockchains, and in this case, specifically Solana, right? And so blockchains, for, for all their strengths, don't natively have the ability to access data that lives 
outside the chain or off chain. And that means you can't incorporate this data in into the logics of smart contracts and applications, and that's that inhibits you from being able to build a lot of interesting stuff. And so Pith is like a almost like a decentralized marketplace or aggregator that enables first-party producers and owners of this data to contribute this price to help build this piece of infrastructure to bring this state to DeFi and enable application developers to build stuff. The reason that us and you know a lot of trading firms and other and, and a lot of the other guys that have announced participation in the Pit network are, are really excited about this is, you know, quant firms have always been on the forefront of technological development, almost as a precursor to being relevant in this business, right? And that's generally been more in the finance and kind of focused software space, but with the rise of blockchains and decentralized finance, it's an opportunity for us to be at the forefront of a completely new technological revolution. And we, we, you know, we've been in this space for the last six years, but a lot of the other participants you know, have been evaluating coming in and in various different aspects. And this has been a really great way for a lot of people to get their hands dirty, own, own a pair of private keys, send a transaction to the peer-to-peer -peer network, and start building a better mental model for the space. Because you can't really understand it before you, do, before you do that. So that's kind of piece one. And then piece two is trading firms have generated a lot of data historically and managed all of this data in, 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 in myriad ways. And exchanges, as I generally model them, are just fintech platforms that are looking to leverage their technology to enable building other cool stuff. And so when you have something like Pith that enables people to contribute this data to effectively make a blockchain data play, uh, as you know, this, this Oracle problem has become more and more predominant as like one of the white whales in the space, it's an opportunity to contribute to something in a neutral fashion and get exposure to the space and, and have a play. And that's why, you know, we're very excited and can't speak for can't speak for other people, but you know, through our conversations have been one of the reasons why a lot of folks have been excited about it. So one of the reasons people are very excited about Solana at the moment is because um, the native token, the price of it has basically gone kind of crazy recently. Um, I don't have it right in front of me, but I think the spike was like bigger than Bitcoin recently. Um, just a lot of outperformance Definitely. there. Yeah. So I'm curious, like um, Anatoly, when you look at the price of Solana and it's going up this sharply, what is it saying to you? Is it saying that people are seeing more value in the Solana network itself and they're willing to, you know, pay more for what is in effect like a processing storage fee? Or is it pure speculation um, and people just sort of, you know, having fun with crypto? <laughs> um. That's really tough, right? That's a tough question. Simply because I don't, <laughs> I think the crypto markets have matured enough to recognize value in smart contract platforms. And that value isn't in the, it isn't just in the processing of, or the data. It's in this like ecosystem, right? The shared state. Like the reason why Ethereum is so valuable is because there's so many companies that have built products that people want on top of it and they're these products people want so much that they're willing to pay these exorbitant gas fees to use them right like that that is the value of ethereum is that like that happened right so what i think if, if anything i think the price is reflecting that the ecosystem in Solana over the last year has grown really dramatically like we saw that in our hackathons 
Our first hackathon had 1,000 registrations. Next one had 3,000. Last one had 13,000. 350 teams actually launched you know, something. Um, a bunch of them, I don't know the exact number, but I feel like it's getting close to 50 have raised funding just during the hackathons. That means that there's now an ecosystem of teams, right? Startups that are quit their jobs at Google or whatever and created a product and have raised outside capital to go then, you know, product market fit, eat glass, grow users, <laughs> right? That That's really, I think, where, if, if anything, that this is reflecting. Let, let me ask a question, and I think it could actually um, be answered by both of you. I'd like to hear both of your perspectives on it, because although we've talked about, okay, Ethereum, it's slower, um, it has high gas prices, there are uh, the so-called layer two solutions that people are building on top of Ethereum. They're also building them on top of Bitcoin, which famously has the Lightning Network, which has been around for a few years. And these layer two solutions can actually can sort of solve this problem of extremely high uh, throughput, low cost transactions. I'm curious from both of your perspectives, what you see as uh, the advantages of having it be on the layer one and why not just say, OK, well, if we want um, you know, security and if we want high throughput, why not just uh, use one of the layer two solutions on uh, that are b- being built right now on top of Ethereum? I think like the magic in crypto happens in this idea of composability where everybody is in the same kind of state, right? We're all playing the same game on the same server. It's all basically super connected. Layer twos create these fractions, you know, and, and like, you know, little shards of, of, of places where a state lives. And the financially, you can, it's very obvious that if you have a market that now has to be split between two different execution environments, two different exchanges, that creates inefficiencies because now you have arbitrage between the prices, between the two. Now you have to have capital in both exchanges, right, and manage that. And that that's really not a great thing when if you have an alternative where everything can be in just one giant pot. So that's a very financial kind of explanation. But I think just developers, you know, you as, as an engineer, Sharding is a huge pain in the ass to deal with a bunch of different rollups where I have to manage state for my application. It's a huge pain in the ass. All I want is like all my whatever 10 million users to not worry about any of the stuff, right? Like as an engineer, it's just easier, right? You want, I want a single CPU with as much throughput as I can, right? Ideally with a single core that's as fast as possible. Dealing with multiple cores is is a little, is still a pain in the ass, but still not as bad as dealing with a network of computers that now have to scale. And, and that those problems are really like something that takes a lot more time for devs to build products versus infra, you know? Yeah, just piggybacking off of that, you know, the magic word that people throw around in the crypto space often is composability, right? And uh, that, that's, you know, what Anatoly was talking about in being able to leverage pieces of state within the same ledger to build cool applications. And so you can take something like bit prices, the Cedar Mortar book, put them together and build a derivative trading platform. And if you have sharded state, you know, those kinds of exciting applications are not possible. And that takes away from a lot of the fun that a lot of these, these, these platforms bring. One thing that Solana has you know, also done really well in is investing in what's called cross-chain bridges, which are pieces of infrastructure that enable state to move between these chains. And so 
Ethereum has all these network effects that, that exist across a lot of these dimensions. And I think all of them eventually convert in converge into building very useful and interesting state. And if you're able to use these bridges to then bring this state over to Solana and perform more interesting computations on that state and create new state with very, very interesting security properties, you know, that makes both Ethereum and Solana, in, in, you know, in my view, a lot more interesting. So I have a weird question, um, but it's sort of related um, to the last point. But I, I think like there's so much excitement around crypto and a lot of it is rooted, obviously, in excitement about technology and its ability to change the world. But on the other hand, there seems to be a lot of belief that once this technology is invented, like, say, Bitcoin, it's not going to be replaced by something else. And it's going to sort of exist forever. So I'm thinking how to phrase this. So, you know, if you have something like Bitcoin, and then people say its use case is limited, so they go ahead and invent Ethereum, and then people try to improve on Ethereum and come up with alternates like um, Solano or like Cardano. Do you ever worry that like the next iteration of the blockchain is going to come along and um, compete effectively with Solana? And then secondly, how do you sort of balance the tension between building a big network? So you want a sort of first mover advantage. You want lots of people to be using Solana. But on the other hand, you know, you could have a new competitor come out of nowhere with a better proposition. My belief is that Solana is kind of like at a terminal design for censorship resistant, real time, get the information bits as fast as we can around the world. There's Pareto efficient trade-offs where if you're building something that is trying to survive, you know, as a monetary system after World War III, maybe Bitcoin is a better design. But if you're building something for real-time trading, trying to disrupt NASDAQ, I don't see a better path. So the network that's going to beat us is going to be very similarly designed to us, but just executing faster, you know, <laughs> people working harder. <laughs> that That's what keeps us working as, as hard as we can. There's also, I think, kind of, this other interesting aspect of this is that the tech itself may be not as important as just empowering people with cryptography. That onboarding experience that you had with Uniswap, that was really painful with MetaMask. Imagine that, you know, we get to a point where you have two, three hundred, five hundred million people that have done it and kind of get the idea of cryptography at the level that people understand what a browser does. Not Nothing more than that, right? But if they get it, then you have that many people actually all now able to self-custody, all interact with any arbitrary blockchain. That space is going to be filled by technologies, you know, like somebody somewhere is smart enough to go build a network and get those people to go do something. You know, that <laughs> the tech is going to be less important, you know, like than the actual getting those humans onboarded. go back to this idea of like, okay, competing against the exchanges, blockchain at NASDAQ speeds. You know, one of the big ways that a lot of these exchanges make money is the licensing of data. That data is extremely valuable. 
And so I'm curious, you know, kind of from your perspective, but maybe from both of your perspectives, is that an area that you see as like, okay, this is prime for disruption. A handful of very powerful exchanges really just control, have a hammer lock on this data. And this could, you could open this up. But also, you know, I'm also curious specifically, say, from the jump trading perspective, and there's a bunch of trading firms that are involved in this. I know like Virtu is one of them. What is the guarantee that the data you're contributing is clean or that it's high quality data? Because it's what, you know, like, how do we, how would I, if I were a, um, a, a user of a Pith or I, you know, designed a smart contract that was contingent on Pith data, how would I have any idea that it's clean, high quality data that's being contributed to it by you or the partners? Couple of questions in there. One, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go for the, the data model. Sure. I, I may not have like the most exciting answer here, but in reality, the, I think the feeds that are coming out of exchanges are primarily consumed by two classes of participants. One are firms like Jump, like Wordu, like GTS, BRW, a lot of other participants in the Pit network that are ingesting this data to execute on like high frequency trading strategies that need to respond in very real time to a lot of these events, right? And modern matching engines have determinism on the order of microseconds and or, or, or sometimes, you know, a lot lower. And blockchains, you know, by construction, Anatoly was just talking about, like, Solana as, you know, like, theoretically as fast as it's going to get because, you know, you're limited by how quickly you can communicate to a global like network of computers and come to consensus, especially over the public internet. And so you're talking about, like, hundreds of milliseconds, right? And a microsecond is to hundreds of milliseconds as a second is to a day. And so you're talking about some pretty dramatic differences here. And so the data feeds uh, that are coming out of these exchanges, the, the, the thing that's probably not disrupted by a blockchain-based data feed is, it, it, it is the level of subscription that, that a firm like Chunk needs to consume to, to interact with high-frequency data strategies. Now, there is a second class of data consumers that are more human time or more real time, right? And these are the guys, the analysts that are picking up the phone on the on the, on the desk and providing commentary on the yield curve, it's back office systems across the world. Like all the classes of participants that don't need data every couple hundred nanoseconds, but don't really want a 15 minute delay, right? And that data model now, now definitely you know starts to starts to get disrupted with, with something like with something like Bit. What I'll caveat that by saying is that what's far more exciting with a blockchain-based data play like Pith is the on-chain applications that are involved. You know, you were talking about some of the, the, the guests that you had that were talking about some of the applications that could be built using this data. Uh, and yeah. I, I almost think of the disruption of that second class of, of, of a data model as basically a side effect of what's being built rather than, you know, its, it's primary motive. And then what about the data quality part? How do we know that the quality that what jump is contributing to is how do we know it's good data right so the way the system works is as a network of independent data providers that are effectively that are all publishing their prices as transactions into the solana blockchain and just to get into the weeds a little bit here along with their prices these data providers are also publishing uncertainties or confidence intervals associated with these prices and you know what that and that's kind of a non-intuitive concept when it comes to, to prices, but de depending on the market structure, any given trade that you're seeing or any given snapshot of the liquidities that you see on any given venue 
inherently is just an observation that has some uncertainty on a variable price. It's like a measurement that you make in the lab. And these data providers are publishing this uncertainty and this price to the blockchain. And over there, like Solana, there's an on-chain program on Solana that's ingesting these inputs and doing some slightly intelligent aggregation to handle outliers, throw away bad data, and, and, and create like a final bid price and an, and an uncertainty that is, that is like a, that, that's on the price as a whole, right? And so developers that are using these prices are basically seeing the aggregate of a lot of this, in, of this data that's being ingested and additionally have this like extra field of uncertainty that adds a degree of freedom to the applications that they're building with. And having this big diversity of coders is critically important, right? There's a lot of idiosyncrasies that, that come into play here, right? Exchanges are like, trading firms could have technology problems. You could have flash crashes on any independent venue. You could have people attempting to game systems. You could have big fat fingerprints that cause, and you need, uh, you, you ideally want this Oracle system to be highly robust to those kinds of events. The second thing that, it, that the other thing that it does is when you have a network of these first party data providers, it's a consolidation of interest across the entire landscape, right? And so depending on market structure of any given asset class, like for U.S. equities, you have RAG NMS that ensures that the 13 or so lit U.S. equity venues trade roughly in line. That's not the case for crypto, FX, treasuries, lots of other international equity markets. And that leads to fractured pools of liquidity that are often separated by geopolitical boundaries, right? And so pricing information that's being submitted by new, new participants as they're coming onto the pit network adds to a representation of like a global price for a lot of these sources. And so not only does it give you a good representation of the price, but also the distribution of those prices, which is potentially very interesting data. And you know, as we see like KGI and GMO and, and FTX and like all these participants across Hong Kong, Singapore, Japan, London, a lot of US venues coming onto the network, it, it's, it, it significantly strengthens that narrative. So that's kind of like, you know, a, a big piece of what makes the, the data very robust, very high quality, and, you know, a much better source of pricing for, for application developers to use. So I'm curious, uh, just going back to the beginning of this conversation where we were talking about how Solana actually works. So if most of this is about expanding the network, uh, upgrading hardware versus actual improvements on the computer science that underlines it, like what is the next big thing for Solana? What are you working on right now? And like, where do you see it going? So um, the innovation in the computer science part, uh, we just got lucky with. That's usually how it happens <laughs> if it works. <laughs> uh, and that's been that's been you know, a blessing for us because we've been really focused on the the hard work of like, realistically, it takes 10 years to build a new operating system, a new database, the stuff doesn't happen overnight. And that's because you're trying to take this abstract idea and form it into real world CPUs, GPUs, you know, network cards that have, you know, their own behaviors. And to do that in a efficient way, it just takes a lot of kind of, you know, blood, sweat and tears. So a lot of the development that engineers do at kind of the core protocol level is optimizations that you would see folks doing if they're working in a Linux kernel or, you know, database like, you know, MySQL my or something like that. 
you know, looking at memory, looking at throughput, block contention, and trying to see where do we have bottlenecks that if a validator that isn't, you know, working on software, if they add more hardware, they add more SSDs, they add more network cards, they should see that improvement, you know, from from that, right, from that investment. So that that's really kind of like our, our goal here is to make this thing elastic with the hardware that's given to it. I want to like, you know, zoom out. One of the things in the whole crypto space is each generation accuses the next generation of being insufficiently decentralized by some metric, right? So Bitcoiners look at Ethereum and they say, oh, Ethereum has Vitalik. And we is like, okay, no one knows who Satoshi was. He has no influence anymore, although people try to still like uh, understand his writings. But then Ethereum, they say, oh, you have Vitalik. He's the leader of it. And there's consensus and that foundation. And also an individual can't run a full node like we can on a Raspberry Pi. So it's insufficiently decentralized. And then the Ethereans look at Solana and it's like, well, you have Anatoly, who's a CEO. We don't even have a CEO, but there's a CEO and you need a big data center. And even maybe it's a little bit more tough to run a node on Ethereum. At least uh, in theory, it could still be done. You need, uh, it can't really, they, someone can't run a full uh, Solana node on their home computer. You're insufficiently decentralized. And so I'm curious, like, how concerned should one be? Or why, let's put it this way. Why shouldn't one be concerned about the lack of decentralization on Solana that Here's a company, you're the CEO of Solana Labs. I get that's different than the protocol, but obviously you have a lot of influence and I, there's no way I could run a full node uh, on it, uh, at home. So why shouldn't I be worried about Solana decentralization? You could run a full node at your local data yeah. center, right? Like, <laughs> okay. And so so I've, I've always felt that it's not about like lowering the barrier to entry. It's about making the thing on the other side so valuable that you're willing to kind of you know, crawl through broken glass to get there. <laughs> so in this case, right, being, having access to financial data, access to the network where you can trade and participate in this next generation of finance at the same speed as jump trading. Like for me as an engineer, when I was working at Qualcomm, I would have drove to like, you know, uh, Hurricane Electric and set up my node like that day, <laughs> like as soon as I would have learned about it, right? Like that's not a big deal for, for somebody that wants to do it. So what I, in terms of decentralization, that question specifically, the way we look at it is we try to address all the quantifiable variables that we can. Uh, and the specific one that we care about is this mac, uh, maximizing the minimum set of independent parties that can get to 33% of the stake weight in the network. And that's a very specific thing. Balaji talked about it, calling it the Nakamoto coefficient. You kind of look at the network and you try to find what is the smallest set of parties or participants, however you slice this network, that if they all colluded at the same time, they could shut it down. So they can never steal funds because a layer one doesn't take custody of your funds. Your cryptographic keys that you own, those things actually help hold custody. But if you're talking about trading, right, or even payments, like a big, a big payments company, right, starts using Solana for payments, what they care about is that the service never gets interrupted, right? It stays fair and transparent and censorship resistant. It's far more important in trading, but also in any financial use case, interruptions cost money, right? So maximizing that minimum set is a quantifiable measurement of decentralization. 
You can start slicing it by data centers, by geographic locations, worldwide distribution, routers, BGP routing routes, right? Like everywhere you look at it, how do we make sure that it, that problem is as hard for an attacker to pull off as possible? And in that sense, it's going back to this like nuclear strike analogy, Byzantine fault tolerant nuclear strike detector. How do we make sure that it's as hard as possible for an attacker to disrupt service? So that, that form of decentralization, I think, is, is like measurable. And if we succeed there, then we can deliver value to you know, humans. And that, that's the real form of decentralization. How many humans actually care about this thing being alive? <laughs> I just have one more question for you, uh, Anatoly. Um, you know, one thing that we haven't mentioned, Sam Bankman-Fried was an early investor, right? And we've had him on the podcast twice. In 2021, it's like the year of SBF, like FTX, his exchange has done incredibly well. You know, Alameda, his trading hedge fund, I think they've done phenomenally well. Can you talk a little bit about his role and his contribution to Solana and how helpful that has been, this sort of like the dovetailing with FTX? I think everything that gets, you know, every new launch on Solana seems to get traded there very quickly. There was a, a token called Mango that just launched. It's already trading there. How Talk about uh, the sort of uh, the synergies and the significance of that. Yeah, so um, FTX was uh, in our connection with Sam really started about a year ago, not not like super early in the life of, of uh, Solana, simply because uh, we, know, you know, we got connected to, to them even before that, but they were looking for something that worked. They didn't really care about our theoretical claims. Like, when is this thing going to be live? Was like the first question out of out of Sam's mouth. Um, and after we launched, we had this little game called Break. You you know you've connected to the network. It sets up, and you pay a little bit of fees, like a few cents, and then you can smash to your keyboard, and you see transactions fire off and get confirmed on your screen. It's incredibly dumb, but it really like showed to their engineers that like, okay, this thing is really live. These are real smart contracts. You can go build whatever you want on it and it's fast and cheap. And that's what kicked off their kind of internal team to go incubate Serum, built a central limit order book, which is something that they really wanted to do for years. Like really, as soon as they started trading on crypto and building FTX, there was this like, how do we do this in a decentralized way? Well, we don't want to do something cheesy like an Ethereum layer two that like doesn't really like do do like a full censorship resistant chain. So that was really symbiotic, really from day one from that moment because their engineers saw how cool what we built and that it actually worked. And at that time, if people remember like about a you know a year and a half ago, FTX was not like the juggernaut it is today. Right, like they, it was a much smaller exchange. They were an up-and-coming exchange. Everyone loved Sam, but it was much, much smaller. And I, you know, we started both kind of taking off right around when Serum launched. Um, a lot of developers started looking into Solana. The tools were really rough at that moment, you know, that time, and the work that the Serum team put in and just building things and showing, okay, this is how things work. This is this is how the libraries work and how you get started. That had tremendous effect on onboarding new developers. Just simply having another another expert start generating, you know, code. These are examples. This is how you interact with Serum. And of course, you know, through that participation, um, you know, Jump and Pith and all those guys really, I think their eyes open to that. I think there is 
it's possible to build the next generation of finance in a decentralized way. So, you know, as, as much as you see Sam on Twitter, the folks at, at Pith and Jump have been doing as much of the work behind the scenes, just not as loudly. Uh, well, Anatoly and Kanov, it was a fantastic discussion. Really appreciate uh, both of you uh, joining us and uh, thanks for coming on Oddlot. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much. Cheers. really interesting. You know what actually I think what really struck me is I mean there was a lot there was a lot there. Anatoly's point, you know, he I, he said well it's like anyone can go set up a Solana node at their local uh data center. And at first when he said that I was like, well that's some sort of like weird joke cuz I'm never going to do that. But actually it I guess the idea is it does kind of make sense. It's clearly like not a network that people can like run like as a hobby or like on their laptop. But as his point, it's like, well, if anyone can do it equally, and we know that this is a problem in finance currently, which is the sort of like perceived inequality of who has the faster hardware or who has a antenna tower somewhere in New Jersey closer to the NYC data center or whatever. If anyone could do it equally, it may not be available to everyone, but that does seem like an interesting potential solution or an interesting potential uh, reimagining of how. Uh, finance could be made more fair. Well, on a related note, I thought his point about, you know, it's not really about the technological innovation, but more about getting people acquainted with cryptography and getting people to understand it. Yeah, that was interesting too. Yeah, that was very interesting. Although I got to say, like, uh, without some sort of improvement in the interface. Um, I just, I find it hard to imagine that like millions of people are going to be doing DeFi, right. but, um, but you know, that could come in time. But, and of course, on the other hand, if you have these networks like Jump and Virtu and a bunch of others, mm-hmm. then, you know, they're interacting with the protocol right. at the sort of like the API level, as opposed to like the, you know, the unicorns on a, <laughs> the unicorn graphics on Uniswap. <laughs> um, but you know what is interesting is like, you know, thinking, hearing from hearing about this from Jump's perspective, I thought was super interesting, too, because it's like there's like, you know, there's serious muscle in this space now. Like anyone who thinks this is going away or a fad or whatever, I think at this point is like missing, missing a pretty big story. Yeah, I mean, it seems like so many, um, well, so much money and so many people are tied up in the industry now that it would be very, very difficult for it to go away. I agree with that. Yeah, no, I thought there was, you know, and again, I, I, I think like this idea, like for years, this idea, I always sort of just took it for granted, like the idea, oh, blockchains have to be bad. Blockchains have to be expensive. They have to be slow. And it's interesting to think that Anatolia is just like, no, they don't. <laughs> There's a different way to do it. Yeah. I'm just thinking, you know, that notion that like it's not so much about innovation in the computer science anymore, but yeah. more on the network and hardware side. I, I mean... I'm kind of, well, look, I'm not an engineer, so what do I know? But like, I know that technology changes sort of all the time. And so I do wonder if something could come. I mean, this th- this to me is like a tension in the crypto space because you're trying yeah. to build a network 
and you want the network to be as ubiquitous as possible. But at the same time, people are trying to build better networks all the time and then make those bigger. And it just seems like it, I don't know. It just seems like you're sort of getting constant change at the moment. And I don't know when we're going to yeah. settle or coalesce around one thing. No, I think this that was a great question. And I do think that, like, it is a question for some of these, like, so-called, like, layer one, like, smart contracting, uh, yeah. smart contract platforms, like, the the barriers to entry in them. Because, like, you know, and I'm sure, like, if we talk to an Ethereum person, they would say, like, oh, Ethereum has, like, 10x as much, you know. 15x as much money involved and, you know, a thousand more, um, you know, a thousand x more developers, etc. But it's not obvious to me, like, uh, the degree of moat, I guess moat is moat is the word I'm looking for, like, how do we know that a sustainable moat exists in this space? And it's not obvious to me that, like, we know where that is, or that that's been established by anyone yet. Yeah, totally. I would agree with that. Um, okay, shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And follow our guests on Twitter, Anatoly Yakovenko. He is the CEO of Solana Labs. He is at A.E. Yakovenko. And follow uh, Kanov Korea. He is a uh, head of new initiatives in crypto at Jump Trading. He is at Korea Kanav. And be sure to follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcasts, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at Podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>